Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Long ago and far away, and Bill Dudley has been on fire recently as a former president of the New York Fed. There was Dudley uh, and McKelvey at Goldman Sachs, and they had this guy out of Germany via Wisconsin, Madison, and Oxford. And I was like, uh, okay. And then he stopped the U.S. market economy world with mortgage equity withdrawal. That's how he first came to my attention. Jan Atsius has gone on to acclaim at Goldman Sachs, not only running economics, but providing a view over investment research uh, for the acclaimed firm. And we're thrilled he could join us today uh, in our studios. Jan, I want to go right to the time continuum. Our Matt Bessler is really looking at this as well. The x-axis out for any Fed chairman is always a challenge. What's the challenge for chairman? Chairman Powell right now as he looks out to 2023? Well, I think there is a number of decisions that have to be made before that. When do they start to taper QE? Mm. They've said that they are not going to hike rates until that process has has concluded or Mm -hmm. at least strongly implied it. And that's also going to then determine what do you think when rates are going to start, start rising. At the moment, as you know, the dot plot is basically saying no hikes until the end of 2023, right. but that's going to be on the table today, and I think it's a close call. It's Our le- best guess is that they stick with what they're set with the message they're sending, right. but it could move forward. There's your exclusive banner, folks. Hatzius predicts boring meeting. Okay, forget about that. It's Latin. It's ex ante. It's ex post. After the fact, I'm Matt Bessler with a really important question. Maybe he'll be in the press conference as well. Matt Bosler making very, very clear that this is about the president base effect analysis versus the truly ex-post inflation expectation game. Which is it? Is this analysis of base effect dynamics or is it truly traditional Fed analysis of inflation expectations? You mean what, what happens in, in 23? What I happens think in 23? The mystery yeah, of how we get out there to this in this new theory. I think that's going to be driven more by what you think about wh- how tight the labor market is and really the traditional stuff. The near-term inflation increase is partly base effect. It's partly reopening effects. And, of course, it's these bottlenecks, which... Uh, which 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 Michael just uh, talked about. Jan, before we get into just the granularity of inflation, I want to understand the granularity of tapering. People talk about it as though it's a monolith. And yet, is it, as Michael Collins said, the Fed getting to zero, getting to no bond purchases at all before they hike rates? That's our assumption. I mean, they haven't said that explicitly, but I would guess that they're going to get to zero and then there will be some time that will elapse before they start moving rates higher and obviously that's going to depend on the data but i i would be surprised though not maybe shocked but surprised if they were still planning to buy say 20 or 40 billion dollars per month in in perpetuity. It's not our expectation. So, Jan, I guess I'm kind of struggling with the idea that they're buying, the Federal Reserve is buying more than a trillion dollars a year in its base case for continuing uh, monetary accommodation as it currently is laid out. Its its balance sheet currently uh, almost $8 trillion. 
it removes this accommodation. Do you really see that it's feasible for it to do so without disrupting financial markets in a way that stymies its effort to ever raise rates? I think there could certainly be some hiccups, especially if you're also seeing a slowdown in growth next year that's driven by the removal of some of the fiscal support. I do think that 2022 is going to be substantially slower on a fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis. We think basically two and a half percent after a real banner year of you know 7.7 percent Q4 to Q4 in 2021. And so if that interacts with an environment in which the Fed is, is tapering bond purchases, you know, I think that could result in a, in a growth scare. Yes, I, I, I do think uh, we probably are going to have some nervousness in that environment. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the fiscal policies here, Jan, because, I mean, obviously there's a multi-trillion dollar uh, proposal down in Washington sitting on someone's desk. It may not go anywhere, or it may end up being a lot smaller than, of course, what the president proposed. But I'm wondering how much of that has to factor in right now uh, to the glide path that the Fed is trying to chart out here. So I think the baseline should be that something gets passed, maybe not the whole thing, but something large in terms of the headline number. But I think the key point is that this is a very different type of spending program relative to the American Rescue Plan Act. That was very front-loaded, $1.9 trillion, basically over a year or a little over a year, whereas this, uh, this, this plan is going to be over 10 years. So whatever number you see, right. you have to divide them by 10. And that's still going to mean a significant amount of fiscal drag in 2022. Right. Uh, that's a great point. It also means, of course, there's still got to be some additional uh, Treasury issuance. It does mean, of course, there's a potential here uh, for changes in tax policy as well, Jan. How do you factor that in? I think that strengthens that point, uh, that it's not going to be as stimulative, because as you say, a significant part of the spending increase is going to be offset by tax increases. And you know, I think it'll be somewhat stimulative, but you know, much less so than the, than the headline number, both because of the 10-year horizon and because of the tax increases. On Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television Worldwide, Jan Hatzi is with us with Goldman Sachs, our chief uh, economist and head of investment research on this day before an important uh, Fed meeting. Jan, your, your statistic there on the slowing of the American economy under 3% is really, really important. I would suggest a huge body of Americans are not prepared for that. If we slow from a boom to a hot CS under 3% economy, we've never done that before. I mean, you and I remember the, we've studied the 50s, the early 50s deflation. Do you anticipate such a shock there in GDP dynamics that we could get to a deflationary dynamic that Eisenhower knew? I don't view it so negatively. I mean, the Right now, we're still a long ways away from full employment. There's still a lot of slack in the, in the labor market, despite the near-term labor supply issues. And strong growth this year is going to get, get us to something like full employment by 2022. At that point, you want to see slower growth because otherwise the economy is going to overheat. Mm -hmm. You do have to worry a lot more about persistent inflation and ultimately, that's not going right. to be a good environment. So I think you'll need to see a slowdown. 
I don't worry about deflation, but at the same time, I think the current inflation is probably largely transitory. And so much as a new economy and the overlay of technology on it, we partition it into goods dynamics inflation and service dynamic inflation. Parse the difference now as we look at a service sector dominant and goods producing as well. Those inflation dynamics for our inflation expectations. Well, I think the surprise in 2021 really has been on the good side. The acceleration in COVID-sensitive sectors, that was very much expected. The base effects were very much expected. Mm -hmm. I think six months ago, most economists would have been really surprised with the enormous surge in used car prices and other other durable goods like that. Mm -hmm. And that's really been, been the key driver. They are outliers relative to the overall distribution of prices. You know, core PCE is above 3%, probably will be above 3% mm-hmm. for most of the rest of the year. But the if you, if you look at trimmed mean measures or mm-hmm. median measures that really capture more the distribution of prices, those are still pretty well behaved. So to me, that, that screams... Uh, screams transitory. What about wages, though? Wages have been going up in particular sectors that have been more in demand, especially with the reopening. How sticky is that? Well, I think we've seen wage increases, especially at the bottom end of the pay scale, leisure and hospitality in particular. I think the evidence suggests that the remaining COVID effects around fear of the pandemic and maybe some childcare issues, but also the $300 unemployment top-up have weighed on labor supply. That's going to be true probably for a few months longer. But in the fall, I think we'll see a big increase in labor supply. And I think that's also probably going to lead to reduced wage increases in some of these sectors. Jan, uh, we got a headline that the Fed's Jay Powell is planning to discuss the pandemic emergency lending program as well as the economic recovery uh, at a House hearing on June 22nd. I am wondering about how concerned you are about the increasingly political nature of the Federal Reserve, not saying that they are political, but that they're getting increasing pressure to be political, to finance the U.S. debt and deficit, especially as the U.S. plans to increase its deficit by so much. I think the, there's always been political pressure and congre- congressional oversight and, you know, obviously jawboning of Fed officials. I mean, if you go back to, to President Trump, there was a lot more overt pressure on the Fed than, than what we're seeing now. I think now we're more in a more normal historical environment where there was always you know, always hearings like this and strong opinions expressed. But in the end, I think the Fed is committed to the uh, to the mandate. And the mandate obviously looks somewhat different now after the after the changes of of last summer. But I, I don't think it's dramatically different from where we've been over the long term. Uh, well, uh, but to Lisa's point as well, though, uh, sort of the shift in that mandate, or at least the tweaking of it, uh, does sort of open the door for greater criticism here. As much as the Fed will, will, of course, try to remain independent and preserve the perceptions of independence here, does the political landscape shift enough here, Jan, where maybe that undermines some of the messaging? Look, I think the the, the way that the mandate is being interpreted looks a little different, I think, for for good reasons, it does make sense to try to average 2%. I don't think 1.7%, which was the average before, is dramatically different from, from 2%. So I don't think it's a, it's a massive shift. 
but I do think that the changes that took place last summer at Jackson Hole, you know, do, do, do make sense. Is that going to be something that will, you know, maybe raise more more questions uh, and including questions from from policymakers on, and from elected officials? Probably, but I, I do think the, the the mandate is reasonably clear. And we, you know, should mm-hmm. uh, over time find out more about exactly how it gets interpreted. Jan Hatzius, thank you for joining us today. Greatly appreciate it with Goldman Sachs. Very generous conversation here. Right now, we are absolutely honored to bring you from the Kennan Institute, their deputy director, William Pomerantz. In the United States of America, he is truly our expert on law in Russia, truly going back to Peter the Great in his important book of a few years ago. Professor Pomerantz, thank you so much for joining us today. If you were to write a long telegram from Geneva today about this summit, what would you say, or is there not enough to say, so it would be a Pomerantz short telegram? I think it would be a very short telegram because we still need to see what actually the two leaders agree upon. Uh, We don't have any preliminary agreements. We don't have any preliminary agenda. So I think a lot will depend on the communication between the two leaders and what comes out of this meeting. Uh, It is much hyped. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is recognized that the relations between the United States and Russia are at a low ebb. Um, But this is not the Cold War. Uh, I don't anticipate uh, Mr. Putin arriving like Mr. Gorbachev and uh, having a surprise. I think it will be a business-like, workman-like meeting. Uh, They'll agree to disagree on a lot of things and they'll try to see where they can cooperate. Uh, Professor Palmer, it's very importantly here, and I think of the Soviet Union. How much of the Soviet Union tone or diplomacy is represented by Mr. Putin, or has Russia completely moved on from the legacy that you're expert in? I think that Vladimir Putin does have certain Soviet tendencies. Uh, In terms of international relations, He is not interested in joining the global order, as it were. Uh, He is interested in sovereignty and Russia's ability to uh, to, uh, to assert its sovereignty domestically and overseas. So I think that this is really the important aspect of Putin's foreign policy. Uh, It's not overly ideological. Uh, It is just to make sure that Russia is respected and has its sphere of influence. And this is not only a Soviet tendency, this goes back hundreds of years. William, before this summit, President Biden met with the allies and asked for their input about how to handle this meeting. I'm wondering how much is Biden talking to Vladimir Putin and how much is he talking to the allies in terms of supporting how they want their relationship with Russia to develop? I think coming out of the EU and the NATO summit, Uh, We have seen a resurgence in the role of the United States as a global leader and its ability to talk and communicate with its allies. So I think that going into this this summit, uh, President Biden has listened to his allies. Uh, There were some important achievements uh, coming out of the EU and NATO summits, both in terms of dealing with China and with dealing with Russia. And I think that one of the real victories for Joseph Biden happened before the summit with Putin. 
and that is that he reasserted global leadership and reasserted the relationship and with, with, with our traditional allies. William, we are uh, expecting President Biden to arrive at this summit any minute, his motorcade on the way. There is a question, though. President Biden is toggling between a harder stance that domestically uh, is politically popular and then internationally is much more delicate, given uh, some of the trade relationships between Europe and Russia and given the geographic proximity of those regions. How is President Biden toggling this? How much has the European view and, frankly, the U.S. domestic political vision of Russia having a hardening line uh, diverging at this point? I think leading up to the summit, uh, President Biden has uh, given Europe uh, a, tre a tremendous uh, victory in the sense that we, the United States is not going to sanction the owners of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and that that is now going to most likely be completed. So in terms of listening to the United States and the European allies, I think President Biden has said, has demonstrated yeah. that he wants this relationship with our European allies. And he has decided that that is acceptable even to the point of not fulfilling Congress's wishes yeah. to sanction owners of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So yeah. I think listening to European leaders. Uh, I think that they're trying to present a united front. It's always difficult to uh, unify Europe on foreign policy issues, but I think uh, President Biden went a long way to healing the rifts that occurred during the Trump administration. Absolutely. And of course, William, though, I mean, we've been here before. We're actually watching uh, on screen right now. Uh, I believe that is the motorcade uh, of uh, President Biden working its way uh, through Geneva here. Uh, Biden, of course, going into this meeting. But of course, we've been here before here uh, with Trump, with Obama, with Bush. Uh, there's been a lot of attempts to sort of restart, re-kick off the relationship between the U.S. and Russia here. Is there any reason why outside observers looking at this should be more hopeful that this time around the outcome is going to be different? In one word, no. Um, I think President Putin has decided to go it alone in terms of uh, international um, foreign policy and geopolitical objectives. Uh, so I think that there is not going to be a reset uh, or anything like that. And Biden has asserted that he's not looking for a reset. Uh, we are looking for ways to which to tone down the rhetoric uh, we are trying to identify areas where we can cooperate, uh, which sounds like the reset, but I don't think as ambitious as a reset. Uh, I don't think mm -hmm. that uh, President Putin uh, is going to change his political stripes and his geopolitical goals. Uh, he has a go-it-alone strategy, he, he, and he has asserted that both politically, geopolitically, right. and economically. Uh, he has introduced various policies such as import substitution, uh, sanctions, uh, counter sanctions on food, on food, etc., uh, that suggest that he's not interested in becoming part of the international global order. That Russia really believes that it needs to go it alone, and that is um, that is the policy of the Deemer Putin. If you're just joining, I don't. 
Well, let me reset here, Mr. Pomerantz, and we'll come back to you in a moment. Uh, on radio and television, we reset this morning. We welcome all of you worldwide and across this nation. William Pomerantz with us with the Kennan Institute, their deputy director. We're absolutely honored that he could give us uh, perspective here this morning. On television, the 19th century, actually 18th century building, Villa Lagrange, uh, where Mr. Putin awaits the arrival of the president of the United States. And route. I, my major observation is the U.S motorcade was maybe going at a faster speed uh, than the Russian uh, motorcade. Prof yeah, Professor Pomerantz, um, I, I think very importantly here is what we've observed over the last number of days, and many, John Mearsheimer at Chicago, Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign Relations, suggesting a NATO overreach. Did NATO reset in the last number of days their overreach of adding countries over the recent end of Cold War years? Was there a reset to NATO, which could be in discussion today? Um, I don't think there's a reset uh, to NATO. Obviously, there is the addition in the communique of dealing with China, although there isn't really overwhelming agreement on how that should be done. So I don't think that we've had overreach uh, in NATO. The second important reason why I don't think we have overreach is that President Biden yesterday issued a very strong statement that NATO is not going to uh, have Ukraine join it anytime soon, that Ukraine has to deal with its domestic policies, it has to deal with corruption before it gets an action plan, before it becomes a part of NATO. And that is an important objective of Vladimir Putin. Putin does not want Ukraine to become a, a member of NATO. Uh, and it appears now that Ukraine won't anytime soon become a member. So I don't see overreach. I see trying to deal with a, a, a post-Cold War world where China plays right. a bigger role. But I don't see that we're over that NATO is overreaching. And I think the best evidence of that is that it's going very slow in terms of uh, inviting Ukraine to become a member. President Biden pulling up to Villa Lagrange and waiting here. The Swiss authorities uh, waiting to greet uh, the president of the United States and I believe inside Mr. Putin. And we'll get an image of the two leaders uh, here in a number of minutes. William Pomerantz, just so importantly uh, to, to any of us, is this word that the president of the United States uses, autocrat. When we see that within the media, when we see that within international relations, how do you define the autocrat that Joseph Biden sees? I think that when we talk about an autocrat, and especially in the Russian sense, we deal with a leader who doesn't have to address uh, domestic politics, as it were. That Putin's word is the final word. Now, he has different issues that he has to deal with, uh, but he doesn't have a legislature that is, is opposed to him. He doesn't have a judiciary that overrules him. Indeed, in the aftermath of all the constitutional amendments this in, in 2020, Putin has solidified his power. So when we talk about an autocrat, it's someone who doesn't have to really deal with the vicissitudes of politics. Power is, is always in the hands of the autocrat. And in Russia's case, uh, Putin's decrees, Putin's word can become law. So this is obviously very different from the American system of checks and balances and, and separation of powers. But this is what the advantage of Vladimir Putin is. He doesn't have to address Congress. 
Uh, he doesn't have to address uh, other constituencies. His word becomes law. William Pomerantz, thank you this morning for joining us with the Kennan Institute. Just a spectacular brief there on this moment for Russia and the United States. Right now with global strategy off of this moment and certainly off the Fed moment this afternoon, we're thrilled that Brian Levitt could join us. He's with Invesco and their global market strategist. Brian, just a perfect day to speak to you as well. How does Invesco reset at mid-year? I don't know if we necessarily reset. I mean, I think the reality is it's an economy that's starting to move from recovery into an expansion phase. So from the large story, a better economic backdrop, a Fed that's on hold, it's still an environment that you want to favor stocks over bonds. You want to favor credit over treasuries. I think to the extent that you reset in an expansion phase is that you start to see more of the growth-oriented parts of the market participate again. And so we had this pretty big value move uh, uh, from the uh, fall of last year, the beginning of this year. And, and I think that continues in an improving economic backdrop. But you tend to see in the expansion phase, your big growth stocks also start to perform quite well. Brian, what will be a bigger surprise to markets today? If the Fed does not bring forward their rate hike expectations based on the dots to 2023, or if the Fed does? I think a bigger surprise to the market would be if they do bring it forward. I think that we're still going to be talking about a very gradual path of normalization. And so my expectation from the Fed is to focus more on what they're going to do with their asset purchases. I think the the message is going to be we're going to start talking about talking about tapering asset purchases um, at some point we'll bring forward at some point we'll we'll move towards where rate expectations are going to be. But the reality is this is a Fed that's telegraphed this pretty well. And I think so far has done quite a good job, particularly if you look at inflation expectations three and five year out which are very much near their comfort zone. And so um, I think the Fed's going to continue on a gradual path. It's, it's a supportive backdrop for markets. And, you know, investors should know even these early moves in Fed policy tend to not be what ends a cycle. They may create some volatility along the way, but it's really the last rate hikes that matter. And we're a long ways away from that. Brian, where do you see us right now in the economic cycle here, uh, and particularly uh, as it sort of dovetails with the positioning that we've seen in equity markets, that rotation uh, to cyclicals and now over the past couple of weeks away from cyclicals? Well, that's a critical question. And and I would say that we're still very early in the economic cycle. And it, the reason I say that, try and say that forcefully, is because I hear a lot of questions of, is it ending soon? Is, it too, is there too much excess? Is it too inflationary? Remember, we had a disastrous outcome. We're digging out of that outcome. If you look at it from a real GDP perspective, we're getting back to where we were at the end of 2019. But if you look at past cycles in the United States, you find that cycles have lasted on average around seven years with a 25% cumulative increase in real GDP. So this idea that we're a year in and only just getting back to where we otherwise would have been suggests it's very early in the cycle. Now, that to me favors risk assets until it looks like the economy is going to roll over. The next question is directionally, where are we? We just had a great recovery phase with all the implications for markets. Now we move into a more expansion phase. And in an expansion phase, um, you shouldn't expect interest rates up as much as they were. I think the dollar is 
still somewhat weaker. Commodities should continue to do wow. well. Equities should do well within equities. Again, shifting more to growth stocks. I got about eight ways to go here, Brian. I hate having you on for what you're on for 45 minutes today. We need to get you on for three or four <laughs> hours here. But, you know, you know, I, I'm going to go here to what you just said, which is horse and cart. Is a weak dollar the horse or is a weak dollar the cart? Well, the weak dollar is a is a byproduct of a we had, we're coming out of a very um, uh, strong dollar environment. We're now in an environment where growth around the world may be a bit more synchronized than it was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. There's been a lot of policy support in the United States uh, and the Fed's telling us that they're going to be on hold. So whether it's a horse or a cart, I think what you're asking is, does that start to unlock some of the value that exists around the world? And I suspect that it does. The, the challenge that investors had investing internationally over the last number of years has been a strong dollar environment. To the extent that the Fed's on hold, policy's relatively accommodative, and the rest of the world starts to participate yeah. more in this expansion, then the dollar should be stable to weaker and, and international markets should perform well. Brian Levitt, thank you so much. With Invesco today, just really well-timed. We're thrilled to greet the engineer, Sean Donovan, who's engineering a New York City mayoral candidacy, uh, looking for victory. And I haven't done this, Sean. I'm thrilled to have you on today because the most unusual vote of New York where second or third is a viable alternative, all of a sudden it is upon us. Explain how your day is different each day because maybe nobody's trying to be number one, but they're trying to be number two or even number three in this ranked voting. Well, Tom, you're exactly right. This is a historic election because we're using ranked choice voting for the first time in New York City. And that means you have to be able to get more than 50% of New Yorkers supporting you all across this city. And what it means is, and we've seen this in other places around the country, that rather than the kind of political attacks we've seen, the mudslinging from the other candidates going into the final debate tonight, what really New Yorkers want at this moment is somebody that instead of politics is talking about plans. And that's, I think, the thing that separates me in this election is I bring real change from the status quo of the last eight years. New York's been headed in the wrong direction, but I also bring deep experience in the moments of crisis that have hit our city. 9-11, Sandy, the Great Recession, all of those I helped to rebuild New York from. And now's a moment, you talked about the excitement of reopening, but it's as if we've just been hit by the hurricane. Now the hard work begins. We still have more than 500,000 mm -hmm. New Yorkers out of work, and we need a mayor who really can lead the city right. forward and has the experience in these moments of crisis. Sean, let's dovetail the reality of the ranked voting and maybe a move to a centrist dialogue with what's clearly become the theme, which is crime and the New York Police Department. How do you dovetail a centrist vote with the responsibility of all constituencies and the New York Police Department? Tom, it's such an important question. And, you know, if we step back and think about the work we did under Mayor Bloomberg that really helped to make New York City the leading city in the world in so many areas that rebuild growth in this city, it was really centered around the idea that in the modern economy, talent decides where to live and companies and capital follow. So quality of life 
safe streets, clean streets, all of the things that make New York uh, a good place to live are central to the economic success of the city. And so we need a mayor who really understands how to keep New York safe. Part of that is getting guns off the street, having a mayor who can work with President Biden, with other mayors and governors. I have those relationships. We could stop guns coming into our city. We also have to recognize, though, we're seeing an, a mental health epidemic playing out on our streets. Yeah. Homelessness has exploded. We're seeing people pushed on our subways, uh, knife attacks, anti-Asian hate crimes, all connected to this epidemic of mental health. And that's work I've done for 30 years is breaking that cycle, providing housing, getting folks off our streets, in addition to the work I've done uh, on public safety and policing, right. that we need to bring those together under the next mayor to help New York City start growing again and to put those more than 500,000 folks back to work. Okay, and of course, uh, in addition to safety here, Sean, a lot of folks uh, are also looking at affordability, housing affordability. This is a tough city to live in for a lot of folks. You are uh, basically a, a housing affordability nerd. You've spent a good portion of your career doing this here. What's the solution, though, for New York City? Because a lot of people have tried to address this before and have failed spectacularly. Well, look, the first thing we need to do is help keep people in their homes. New York City was the hardest hit city in the world uh, a year ago. We still have more than half a million hours. We're on the verge of the worst eviction crisis of our lifetimes. And instead of having a mayor who will demonize and divide us, uh, go after the private sector, we need to bring billions of dollars of aid that's available right now, get it quickly to our renters, uh, but also to our landlords to keep them afloat and make sure that we avoid that crisis. Second, we need a mayor who can work effectively between public sector and private sector to grow our economy and to create more housing. We have a desperate shortage of housing that is pushing up prices all across the city. And so what I would do is just as I did when I was housing commissioner, work to make more housing affordable, to grow New York City, but also to make sure we're using all of our tools to create a lot more affordability. And one of those is home ownership. You know, we've learned that the best way to stop people being pushed out of their neighborhoods is give them a piece of the pie, help them own. And that's kind of the forgotten strategy in affordable housing yeah. in New York City the last eight years. I would bring that back and make sure that we're creating wealth and growing opportunity in the city for affordable housing. We are out of time. Valuable time it has been. Sean Donovan, thank you so much. New York City mayoral candidate. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.